Well, with those things said, uh, we are in John chapter 14. Our text today is John 14 verses 1 through halfway through verse 6. Uh, we're going to have to cut Jesus off. Sounds very strange to say that. Uh, but you'll see as we go through the text this morning, and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next time together. So we are in John 14 verses 1 through 6a. That's where we're going uh, I'm going to go ahead and read the passage, pray, and we'll jump right into the word this morning. Beginning in verse 1 of John 14, Jesus is in the middle of speaking. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the unshakable truth, the glorious reality that you have sent your son, Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we pray this morning that, Father, you would bring people to yourself through Jesus. And that for all of us, you would strengthen our faith in Jesus. And in doing so, strengthening, strengthening our faith in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask for your word to go forth and to transform and to accomplish all that you want in each and every one of our hearts this morning. Making Jesus famous, satisfying us with your love and the beauty of your holiness. And in doing so, Lord, that we would... Be faithful to shine as uh, your gospel light in this dark world. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, amen. Troubles. Troubles are a characteristic of our world. And in the West, with our technological advancements and distractions, we as a culture seek to grow in our skill of doing all that we can to avoid discomfort, trouble, and sorrow. Thinking through how people respond, you could consider that the pressures and perplexities of life are so crushing that for one man, the only way that he can cope with the pressures and perplexities of life is to go deeper and deeper into the bottle and thereby losing himself. Or for perhaps this woman, the insecurities and uncertainties of life were so paralyzing, so disjointing that she sought solace in relationship after relationship after relationship. For us all, each look to different places, we each look to different people to somehow find comfort from the hardships of life. 
And none of us, Christian or not, none of us are immune to the troubles and confusions of life. Christians, we can be prone to discouragement and bewilderment, especially when we can't seem to understand God's word at work in the world, let alone our lives. And that is the case of the disciples today in our text. You may recall that it's the final Passover. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet in chapter 13. We've looked at that the past two weeks. Jesus has announced that he's going to be betrayed. Satan has filled Judas, and Judas has left to go betray Jesus. Meanwhile, the disciples know something foreboding is up. They have just heard Jesus in the verses leading right before what he just said in verse 1. Say that Peter, Peter the stalwart leader of the disciples, Peter himself is going to, to deny Christ before the rooster crows in the morning. And all of this information and these, Jesus has been saying that he's going to go to the cross. They don't get it, so they know something foreboding is up. And all of this has conspired to trouble and destabilize their hearts. They're not sure what Jesus is saying. They're not sure where Jesus is going. The confidence they've had these last three years of seeing the teaching and, and the dueling with the religious leaders and the miracles and the signs and war, but now this, this, a dark cloud seems to be in this upper room. And just like the disciples, we can be easily troubled. Just like them, we can be troubled in our lack of understanding in what Jesus says in his word. Our lack of faith, our lack of putting into practice what Christ's word says. We can be troubled like the disciples in our interpretation of our circumstances. We hear what people say, we see what people do, we see things unfold the way they do, and we can forget Christ and be troubled in how we interpret our circumstances. We, like the disciples, can be troubled by our doubts, troubled by our confusions, troubled by our anxieties, troubled by our perplexities, troubled because we live as if this side of the cross, Jesus has not already lived for us, died for our sins, risen from the grave, and currently reigning over every moment, molecule, and mind of the universe. We can forget those things. But Jesus himself, himself is the answer and antidote to all of your troubles. Jesus is the answer and antidote to our troubles between us and God. He is the Redeemer and Savior who can rescue us from our sins against God. And Jesus, who is God the Son incarnate, is also able to untrouble us with himself because he has lived. He has died for us. He has risen so that by faith we can rest in him because of who he is and what he did. So this morning in our text, Jesus wants your heart to be untroubled by the troubles of this life by believing in him more. That's the aim of our text. That your trust in Jesus and in Jesus' word would expand and grow. And perhaps this morning you don't yet know Christ. And you're thinking 
about him and considering him. The question before you today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, is whether or not the places that you currently look to find peace from your troubles actually deliver from those troubles and give you peace. Do the places that you look, if you don't know Jesus, to get deliverance from trouble, do they truly and eternally give you peace? Or do they just exchange one form of trouble for another? And the question before all of us in the text, those of us who follow Jesus, is in what ways does Jesus' greater revelation of himself comfort and stabilize our hearts? So our text this morning will encourage us with three truths about Jesus to let not our hearts be troubled. So if you're taking notes, here they are. Number one, the first truth, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus as you believe in the Father. That's verse one. Number two, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is preparing a place and coming back for you. It's verses two and three. And finally, let not your heart be troubled. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that's verses 4 through 6. Well, let's jump into our first point. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in Jesus as you believe in the Father. Look at verse 1. Jesus is continuing to speak. If you look up in your text, it's a red letter right above it as he's talking about Peter denying him. And then he says to all the disciples, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. Trouble is an interesting word. In the Greek, the word that's troubled here is used elsewhere to describe agitated water. Maybe you can see that in your mind. Agitated, shaken water. The water is not calm, the water is not glassy, the water is not glassy and reflecting the mountain scenery, rather the water is disturbed, it is shaken, and the water can't reflect anything other than its own agitations. The word trouble in the Greek can be used for agitated water. And here Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, and picture the agitated water to put a portrait upon what their hearts look like listening to Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. And this is what happens to all of our hearts in many ways. Our hearts can become destabilized rather than strengthened easily. Our hearts can become agitated rather than tranquil. Our our hearts can be shaken rather than having God's shalom, His peace. Our hearts can reflect our problems and our anxieties rather than reflecting the face of Christ. I know you can relate. Anxiety, fear, nervousness, worry, apprehension, unease, panic, all of them are a band of robbers. They're a band of robbers that seek to steal, kill, and destroy your joy in Jesus. They're an evil horde that turns us into functional atheists, where in those moments we no longer trust, rest, and rejoice 
in the person, promises, and provisions of Jesus. Instead, well, our shaken circumstances become a functional God. Anxiety, fear, and panic fight against our faith, and they seek to berate our belief in Jesus and more. And no matter how much we try to uh, inoculate ourselves from those anxieties with our phones, there is such a thing as doom scrolling. Here, Jesus says to the disciples at their confusion, and he says to us in our anxieties, let not your hearts be troubled. The disciples did not grasp their circumstances. They don't know why Judas left. They don't know why Peter is going to do what he's going to do because they don't understand when Jesus said, Peter, you're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. Their hearts are troubled. They don't fully embrace what Jesus is teaching. The anchor of their souls in this moment is not more than Christ, but rather what they saw with their eyes and heard with their ears and all of their misunderstandings because they were becoming bad interpreters. They were misunderstanding life in God. Jesus, of course, because he is Jesus, knows this because he knows them and Jesus knows you. And so Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. And as we've seen before, many times, an overarching truth in the Bible that shines forth in this text is that our tendency in our troubles and anxieties is to say, why God? Or if we don't say, why God? To begin to shop around on a horizontal level for a look, to look for some source of peace and solace from our troubles. But God's answer to our troubles is not primarily to remove us from them. Although that's what we try to do as quickly and as uh, um, expeditiously as we can, expeditiously as we can, no, God's answer in our troubles is not primarily to remove us from our troubles, nor is God's answer in our troubles to primarily explain them. Oh, come here, son and daughter. I will explain to you why I've brought this hardship into your life. No, God doesn't do that. Read the book of Job or read this chapter. God's aim in all our troubles is to give us more of himself. And that's what Jesus does in this text over and over again in these three points. How is it possible for the disciples to not let their hearts be troubled? The answer is, Jesus is in process of giving them more Jesus. He is deepening their faith, expanding their faith, strengthening their faith by giving them more of him. And in giving the disciples more of Jesus, and by the way, he's giving us more of himself in the word this morning. When Jesus gives us more of himself, that allows us to be untroubled by our troubles, even though perhaps our circumstances are the same. So Jesus is not going to change the circumstances or story of the gospel for the disciples to untrouble them. He's not going to take them around the valley of the shadow of death, as Avery read. He's going to take them through the valley of the shadow of death as he himself leads himself through it to, the, to his illegal betrayals, trials, and death on the cross for our sins. 
So Jesus' first antidote to reorient and revive their faith and yours is this. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The belief in God, they believe in God. For the disciples, when he says believe in God, they would say, yes, we do. God was and is the gravitational center of their lives and ours. These disciples, God was the one from whom they made all of their decisions. He was the object of their adoration. And Jesus was reminding them in that phrase, believe in God. He's reminding them and calling them to more faith. But what Jesus says next is astounding. He doesn't say, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, and then move on. Do you see what he says next? Believe also in me. The wording in the Greek is more poetic and punchy. Uh, they've tried to smooth it out for English, but in the Greek it reads this. Believe in God, in me also believe. So it's bracketed by believe, believe, and God and me, Jesus, are next to each other. Believe in God and me also believe. In other words, Jesus is calling these men and you and me to believe in Jesus Christ the exact same way they believe in God the Father. In other words, Jesus is showing that he is God in the flesh. Jesus should also be the gravitational center of our lives. Jesus' word would also now be the uh, light by which they would make all their decisions and we would make all of our decisions, that Jesus would now also be the object of our devotion. In other words, in this upper room farewell discourse, Jesus is calling all his disciples to become Trinitarian. And in doing so, pouring the solid foundation of belief against the agitation of troubles. The first antidote to not letting your heart be troubled is recognizing that the Son is in the Father and the Father is in the Son. That's in verse 7 and 8 and 9, which we'll look at more later next week. But the first answer to the agitation is to, for you to become a better thinker and worshiper about the Trinity. You see, only the truth of Jesus sets us free. Only the truth of Jesus calms the storms in our life. So Jesus gives greater revelation of himself to the disciples to assail their fears. So it all begins with right faithing, which is based on right thinking. You need to know the right Jesus, confess the right Jesus, believe the right Jesus, in order to have those untroubled hearts. Right with God, right with Christ. Jesus is changing what they know, how they think, so that they would not be troubled by what on the face of it should be troubling. Jesus is going to be arrested in a few hours and crucified a few hours more beyond that. And he is saying to them in the very beginning, before anything else, believe. Believe in God, also in me, believe. God is in charge of it all. Jesus is working out the gospel plan. The Holy Spirit is overseeing everything. So they should simply rest in their belief. Let not your heart be troubled. 
believe in Jesus as you believe in the Father. But more than that, next, you can let your heart not be troubled for Jesus is preparing a place and coming back for you. Point number two, look at verses two and three. Jesus continues, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know, as I was growing up, I began to have some exposure to Christianity later in my high school days and into college. And as I began to have exposure to Christianity, I thought Christianity, as an unbeliever, I thought it was one of many philosophical systems. I thought it was a good philosophical system, it seemed, because, I mean, I hadn't read the Bible, just Jesus seemed like a good guy to believe. But I thought it was merely philosophical and that we could read Plato or some other philosopher and equally pick or choose what we wanted. Part of the error of my thinking was that Christianity was essentially just simply an old, dusty philosophical system. That it was back then, and maybe you could use some of its truths to make your life a little bit better, but that was, that was it. Instrumental in my conversion to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, was recognizing and learning that there is infinitely more in our future as Christians than in the past. That no, the book is not dusty and old, it is golden and fresh. And that it's not a philosophy, it's a person. And it's a text like this that helped me see that. In these two verses, our hearts are comforted the disciples' hearts are comforted regarding Jesus' departure. They don't understand, but Jesus comforts them by revealing that their and our eternal dwelling, dwelling will be with God in his glory and that Jesus most assuredly will return to gather all his people to himself. God's aim in Christ through the gospel is that we might be together forever in him. Now, verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that? I go to prepare a place for you. Now, my mind immediately goes to the apocalyptic picture, the end of the Bible in Revelation 21 and 22, of that 1,500-mile cube that descends from the new heavens to the new earth, thereby joining heaven and earth, a garden city <clears throat> in which Christ reigns. He is himself the temple in which the kings of the earth come in and out of that as if Jesus is going and preparing that and that very well may be the case but there is some scholars have pointed out some very interesting textual connections within the gospel of John that reorient what Jesus is saying so some scholars point out that Jesus has already spoken of the Father's house. Because you read verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. So our minds go to the heavenly places, the, the intermediate place until we go to the new earth. But these scholars point out, well, in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus has already talked, has already said what the Father's house is. Do you remember? It's in John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, 19, Jesus rebuked <clears throat> the religious leaders by saying, Do not make my what? Father's house a house of trade. What's that house? It's the temple. Then, a few verses later, after Jesus, you know, he's overturned the money, ta the money tables and whatnot. Then Im immediately Jesus says, destroy this temple, the Father's house, and in three days I will raise it up. And then John inserts himself and says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So Father's house and temple are equated in John. You go back to chapter 1, we read in 114, the word became flesh and tabernacled or templed among us and we have seen his glory so what some scholars note is that when jesus is saying i go to prepare in my father's house are many rooms jesus's aim is not so much to speak of the new heavens and new earth and the new jerusalem coming out of heaven but the wideness of the gospel and how christ himself is his father's dwelling place because the logic of the text he goes on to say in verse 7, for example, If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then in verses 8 and 9 and down, he says, I am in the father and the father is in me. It's a very interesting observation that is made. So in other words, when Jesus goes to prepare a place, the preparation is not that Jesus has a carpenter's belt on and he's hired Chip and Joanna Gaines to decorate the place. <laughs> the preparation of the place is that he was about to be betrayed, then tried, then die for our sins on the cross, then be buried for three days, then rise, thereby rising as the new creation and opening the door for believers to now go into God's presence in the intermediate place. I think that's a very interesting argument from the text itself of what Jesus' aim is. Because what we tend to do is to begin to think about, well, uh, where is the Father's place and how many rooms are there and what do the rooms look like? And we go to the whole point of, well, thinking about that, and it's good to think about that, but that's not the point of this context. In this context, Jesus' aim is to let not our hearts be troubled and the emphasis is his going and coming back so whether this passage is primarily referring to our new creation abode and that's a true thing to think about the bible speaks of it or whether the emphasis of this passage is about jesus being our gospel way that we will be in him the prayer in john 17 that we would be in him as he is in us and and that strange language which we'll look at in coming weeks about the Trinity and our relationship with the triune God. Both are biblically true. There's a place that we're going to go and dwell forever on the new heavens and new earth. And Jesus is himself, well, the door of the sheep. Or, in a moment, the way, the truth, and the life. So, um, John is a master of double meanings and he loves doing it. Perhaps he means both. Let's just believe both because both are biblically true. But the point is, when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? 
And here it is in verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. I will take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. The disciples are troubled because Jesus said he's leaving. That's the worst news they can possibly hear. And he says, in essence, no, it's good that I go because I'm coming back. I'm coming back. The purpose of this passage is comfort and to de-trouble our hearts. So notice the sturdiness of the certainty of Jesus' words. If I go, he says, then I will come again and take you to myself. So the emphasis is not so much on what the house is, the Father's house is. The emphasis is not so much on where the house is. The emphasis is that the Trinity wants something very, very good for you, such that the Son was sent by the Father in the power of the Spirit to live the life you couldn't and wouldn't live, to atone for your sins on that old wooden tree, and to rise for our justification so that God would bring us to himself forever in unending bliss. So it's fun to think about what eternal glory will look like. And we should meditate on that often. But we should think even more often-er on the fact that God himself has done all this because he wants us with himself face-to-face for eternity, unending bliss. That's Jesus' comfort to the disciples. I'm going. We don't know where you're going. Well, I'm going, and I'm going to come back. So what you need to focus on is that Jesus is coming back. And this truth is meant to still our hearts in the storms of life. And what's amazing is Jesus' logic in the text is that because he has left to prepare a place for us, and the fact that he's not yet physically back right now is proof that he's coming back. I don't know if you caught that. It might seem like a strange logic to us and a very odd proof to us, but this is how God often works. So the argument of many is, well, hey, it's been 2,000 years, and uh, he's not back yet. So I think that you believe in myths, fables, and fairy tales. But the logic of this text is if he goes, and he did, then most assuredly he will come back. Christian, don't doubt. Don't doubt the the delay of our Savior because he is saving many people alive. He has people to save in your family. He has people to save in this small town. He has people to save across this globe. And part of his delay is to gather, the Father to gather by the Spirit, a bride for his Son. Then the bridegroom will return. The good shepherd will come back for his his sheep. So not only can our hearts not be troubled because we believe in Jesus in the same way we believe in the Father, and not only can our hearts not be troubled because Jesus is preparing a place for us and coming back, but our hearts need not be troubled because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Point number three, look at verses four through six. 
And you know the way to where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. To this I say, thank you, Thomas. I just picture him sitting in the back corner, reclining at table, just hands cupped. Hey, Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. I like this guy. And as Jesus does, he uses, we see in this, so he'll, he'll do the same thing with Philip in, in verse 8, and he uses these different um, confusion statements from the disciples to lead into more teaching. So thanks to Thomas, this leads, his question does, to one of the most famous passages in the Bible, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The disciples are perplexed because Jesus is saying he's going to prepare a place for them and you know the way. Thomas says, we don't know the way. And now Jesus says, I am the way. You may recognize in verse 6 that Jesus is making the sixth of the seven famous and great I am statements of the Gospel of John. And you may recall that when Jesus says, Ego eimi in the Greek, I am, he is claiming to be the voice and presence of the burning bush speaking to Moses who said, I am who I am. Jesus is claiming to be, um, I am who I am, now in the flesh, and further explaining to us what it means that he is I am. And Jesus comforts us and the disciples in this verse with four revelations of himself. And if you're investigating the claims of Christ this morning, thinking about Jesus, I invite you to take special note of what Jesus says here. And for you, brothers and sisters, that what we are reminded of in this moment is meant to strengthen our faith and untrouble our hearts. So, so these four revelations, these details in verse 6, first, notice that Jesus says, he is the way. Now, in our context, this does not mean that Jesus is a trailblazer. He's going to go cut down some trees, mark them up so we can find the trail, and then of our own accord, walk and follow Jesus. That's not what he's saying here about being the way. Neither in this context does this mean that Jesus is going to be our guide and that he'll walk along with us. Because the point here is that we're not doing any walking in this context. Let me prove that to you. It's because Jesus doesn't show the way, go the way, he is the way. So Thomas does not need a topo map. He doesn't need a GPS system. What Thomas needs is Jesus. 
and you do too. Think about again verse 3. He has just said, if I go to prepare a place for you, here it is, I will come back and then here, here it is, and take you to myself. Jesus is the way by virtue of the fact that he is the ferryman to carry us across the river of ages from one to the next. Jesus is the way because he carries us the whole way. So Jesus can say he is the way because he is the trailblazer in other texts, but not for us to walk. He is the fireman who is carrying the, really, the, the dead body who then brings us back to life and still carries us. He is the one who will take us to himself. So when Thomas says we don't know the way, Thomas is thinking that he needs a GPS system. And Jesus says, no, it's me. I carry you. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way because he alone and no one and nothing else in all of creation can bring you from death to life. No one else other than Jesus can bring you from darkness to light. I think about John chapter 1, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus himself and Jesus alone is the life. You, you don't need waypoints. You need a person, and his name is Jesus. To be made right with God, and to carry you through this life and into glory. And the question then is, as he said it to the disciples, the question is this. Does that comfort you and untrouble your soul? Because, friends, it should and it ought to. Praise Jesus that Jesus is the way. He is the door of the sheep. He is the good shepherd, the other I am's we've looked at earlier. But by being the way, he carries us all the way. So Thomas doesn't need the map. Thomas needs Jesus. And friends, if you have Jesus, that is meant to untrouble your soul from the anxieties and perplexities and more. Because Christ will bring you home. Now, I don't know if you've heard this before, but something along these lines. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of God with great glory. It's this. But secondly, Jesus is not only the way, Jesus is the truth. Again, that definite article, the, 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 do you see the, 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 before all those words, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus is the truth. This does not mean that Jesus is truthful, he is, nor does Jesus mean that he has a lot of truth in him, he does, all of it. No, Jesus' claim of himself here is that he, and this is abstract and mysterious, but true. Jesus in himself is the source and enfleshment of all truth. <laughs> he actually is the only person in creation who can actually say my truth. When Jesus is the truth, that means that the moral fabric of the universe, 
moral fabric of the universe, all mathematical elegance, all creational physical structures, from the subatomic level to the universe as a whole, everything in between, the truthfulness of all of those things are rooted and held together by Jesus. Both morals, mathematical elegance, creational structures. That's why in Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know, a helpful definition of truth, when Jesus says that he, I am the truth, a helpful definition of truth is reality as God defines it. So notice the, the locus of definition is not you and me or anybody or a, um, a supermajority of people. No, truth is reality as God defines it. Jesus is the definition of reality. And him being the truth is bound up in the biblical reality that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise, and all-good. The question is then, dear friends, does the fact that Jesus is the truth comfort you and untrouble your soul? Because when those anxieties and perplexities come of the wayward relationship, the lost job, the waiting to hear the results on the test... If Jesus is not the way, and if Jesus is not the truth, there is sufficient reason for you to be troubled, fearful, and anxious. But no, Jesus is the comforter of our hearts. He is the way. And thirdly, Jesus is the life. That means that every created thing that lives, lives because Jesus wills it. Every created thing that lives, lives because Jesus willed it. And the double meaning here is both um, existence, the, the bee buzzing around the flower, and you breathing in the chair, existence, but also eternal spiritual existence, the double meaning. When Jesus says, I'm the life, right? So when he upholds the universe by the word of his power, he is sustaining the strong and weak nuclear forces in the, the uh, atoms of your body and holding it together and more. He sustains and holds together your spirit, as it were. So he makes all that exists exist, but then also eternal spiritual life. So right now in this moment, even those who hate and reject Jesus... You might be here this morning, bitter against Jesus and despising him. Understand that in his common grace, he is literally holding the fabric of your being together according to his will. You exist at his good pleasure. And that, dear friend, ought to melt your heart to believe in him that he is good. But the focus here of the disciples as he looks... As, as Jesus sees the hearts of the disciples on their perplexed faces, the focus of the text is the eternal life in Jesus received through belief in him. Remember verse 1, believe in God, believe in me. And when we believe in Jesus, repenting of our sins 
and this side of the cross, trusting in his cross work and his resurrection and ascension, when we believe in Jesus, he gifts us gladly eternal life. And eternal life, don't forget, does not just describe duration of existence, eternal, it describes the quality of life. So if you can think through how to take the word eternal, but apply that to ever and unending bliss, where the first day is perfect and the best ever, but then every day to follow is better than that one, and however that works out, that's what Jesus is talking about. The gift that he gives us in himself and who Jesus is, he is the life. And it's this Jesus who's the life is the one who is eager in his gospel plan to finish preparing the place for us and come back and take us to himself. That is the Father and the Son's and the Spirit's desire. And so the question then, dear friends, is this, does that comfort you? And does that untrouble your souls? Because Jesus' aim is that it would do so for you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life the presence of the burning bush made flesh, here to let not our hearts be troubled. And the final thing that he says here in verse 6 is this, no one comes to the Father except through me. You cannot get more exclusive and specific than John fourteen six. There is this idea out there that all roads lead to God. And that the truly enlightened ones recognize that all of this religious fighting on earth is really uh, ignorance and stupidity because you're all going to end up at the same God in the same place anyways. The idea out there is that, well, we, we can't, why can't we all get along? They all, we're all going to reach the same mountaintop. But here... Jesus obliterates that false notion. There is only one true religion. There is only one true God. There is only one true Savior, Jesus Christ. God the Son, incarnate, second person of the Trinity. Only Jesus, this Jesus, leads us to the Father. You know, think about how John tells us in 1 John that many antichrists had already come at his point. The Antichrist is coming, false Jesuses and more. And we've had 2,000 years for the enemy of our souls to pepper religions with false Jesuses, false messiahs. And so it's very important that you worship and know the right Jesus. And that's why this is so Trinitarian in nature. The Bible warns against false Christs. If you don't confess the Trinity, you don't confess the real Jesus. And you will not come to the Father. We are Trinitarian. That's the litmus test of truth. But the beauty here of how exclusive Jesus is, is the simplicity that he gives to us. Do you notice that for us, salvation is not complex? It is faith in the finished work of Jesus. The one who alone brings us to the Father. So herein also is not just simplicity, but security. Ours is simply to believe in this glorious Jesus, God in the flesh, and he is the one who's responsible to do everything else. He didn't live, die, and rise, and then say, figure out how to find me. 
He's the one who sends his spirit, John chapter 3, to cause us to be born again. And then he doesn't cause us to be born again and say, okay, now figure out, dear Christian, how to get your way to heaven. No, because he's the way, he's going to come back and carry us to heaven to be with himself. All through and through, all through the gospel of John, our task is singular and simple, believe. Repent and believe, and God gladly does everything else. Praise God. Could you imagine if it was left to us at all? None of us would be saved. We should go for a hike. <laughs> Friends, the antidote to our troubles this morning is more Jesus. Hearing Jesus and seeing Jesus speak to us from his word and relishing and treasuring and and, 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 and just loving him more, believing and meditating on these truths more and more, the antidote to our troubles is more Jesus, not less. More staring at his word than staring at our troubles. Trusting God as he brings us through the val valley of the shadow of death rather than around it. Knowing that our circumstances may not change, but our apprehension... Our appreciation of Jesus expands. Jesus is the one who is the anchor of our belief in the Trinity. The one who is preparing a place and coming back for us. The one who alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only one who can come and bring us to the Father. Christian, let these gems of truth untrouble your soul and fix your eyes on Christ finding your rest in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And friend, if you don't know Christ, this is him speaking to you from his word to turn from your sins, repent, believe in him, and entrust yourself to the only trustworthy one who is the truth. Amen? Amen. Lord, we worship you and praise you for the gracious gift of your son. Your gospel plan is beyond magnificent. And the hope that you give us that you do it all for us through and through, moves in our hearts to want to follow you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, let us do that. Save in this place. Strengthen our faith in this place. Loose our lips to sing your praises in this place. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.